I gotta tell you, as soon as the elders decided that we were gonna study through the Psalms together, I was excited about this particular Sunday because today we come to Psalm, what's after 50? Psalm 51, one of the most well-known and most beloved Psalms in the entire collection. In fact, several well-known historical figures turned to Psalm 51 at the very end of their lives. For you history nerds like me, Sir Thomas More, Lady Jane Grey, both recited this psalm when they were on the scaffold as martyrs for their faith under the reigns of Henry VIII and Queen Bloody Mary. And William Carey, the great English missionary, requested that Psalm 51 be the sermon text at his funeral. So this is a powerful and important song. Now, the theme of, of, our, of our passage this morning is confession. I think it's important. Having just spent time for the last couple Sundays talking about spiritual disciplines for 2024, I'm going to add this one to the list this morning, confession. We should be confessing regularly as a discipline. It's something that we should be engaging in on a regular basis as we abide with Christ, as we walk through life with Jesus, both in our our highs and our lows, our victories and our failures, we confess sin each and every day. Now, at the outset, I want to say that Psalm 51 has a special message for several unique groups of people. First of all, for those who have never truly acknowledged the depth of human depravity, this psalm is for you. Nor those who have not understood the soaring magnitude of God's grace. Both of those come as a shock for those of us who either A, haven't studied the word deeply, or B, haven't done a lot of deep heart work in our own lives. But good news, David's example in Psalm 51 is going to help us see both sides of that ledger, both depravity and God's grace. Second group, Psalm 51 is for those who are perhaps under the strong delusion that they're too knowledgeable or too holy to fall into sin. We're going to find out that that happened to David. And of course, he is described as a man after God's own heart, and he fell hard. Third, this psalm is for those who think that once you have fallen, that you can't recover. That, that for some reason, your sin is just too great to be covered by the blood of Christ. We're going to see that that is not true. And then finally, Psalm 51 is for those who think if you have fallen and have gotten back up, but now somehow you're unqual or disqualified or useless in service to Christ. That is not true. And we're going to find that out in David's life as well. So lots of groups can learn from Psalm 51. And the fact is, guys, listen, we've all sinned in big ways. This is, this is common among every person in this room, every one of us. We have sinned in big ways. And I don't know about you, but I wish I had a few do-overs. In golf, we call them mulligans, right? You, you, you tee off the first tee and you shoot one into the woods, you get a mulligan, you get a do-over, right? Well, I wish I had some do-overs in my life, some things that I could change about my past so I wouldn't have to go back and think in my mind about those memories that I have. And I wish I could make some of the painful lessons of my failures, of my, of my you know, consequences disappear, the ways that I've hurt myself, the way I've hurt other people, and the obstacles that I've put between myself and the Lord at times. And, and this is common, again, to all of us, right? Everyone in this room this morning. So we are going to go on a journey together through Psalm 51. Not just today, but next Sunday and maybe a third Sunday, because this psalm is so important. So grab your Bibles, and let's go there. Psalm 51, let's see if we can get the clicker to work. To, there it is. And actually, since I created that slide, I knocked a verse off. 
Psalm 51, verses one through five. That's what we're looking at today. We're just gonna, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna cover just those first five verses. And we're gonna talk about the historical context in which they were written, because that's very important. So we'll read right through these five verses first, and then we're gonna come back in a little bit and we'll break them down thought by thought. So look at Psalm 51, verse one, and hear David's cry. Be gracious to me, O God according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me. Now, before we just dive into the historical background, let me till the soil of your heart just a little bit so that you can start to prepare your hearts to identify with David and what he's written here. Sin, as you know, is deceitful, right? It hides, it wears a mask, it bends its shape into attractive forms, it entices us into two things. On the one hand, disbelieving what God says is true, and on the other hand, telling us that what we really desire in the flesh is gonna bring us satisfaction and happiness. And so sin masquerades before us every day in many, many ways. And if we don't realize that, we are walking into each and every day completely unprepared. Christian author Paul Tripp provides some examples of how this masquerading happens. He writes, lust masquerades as a love for beauty. Loud arguing wears the costume of a zeal for truth. Gossip does its evil work by living in the costume of concern and prayer. Craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. Fear of man gets dressed up as a servant's heart. The pride of always being right masquerades as a love for biblical wisdom and so on and so on, right? Evil simply doesn't dress up as evil. That's what draws us in. And, and the fact is a lot of us, many of us, all of us maybe, we're all to some degree or another self-deluded, not really knowing the true depths of our own hearts. It is amazing, have you noticed this, how easy it is to notice sin in other people? But we don't always turn that mirror on ourselves and, and, and diagnose our own sin with that same accuracy and precision. Many people in the church are simply blind to their blindness. But the core problem is that to one degree or another, we are all seeking to serve the kingdom of self. This affects all of us. We're serving the kingdom of self while at the same time saying with our mouth that we're serving the kingdom of God. And there's so many things that we want from life. We wanna be comfortable always. We want our schedules to be uninterrupted and to just go smoothly each day. We want the people around us to admire us and appreciate us. We wanna control every situation and every relationship in our lives. We want people to affirm our opinions and do what we think they should do. We want our specific likes and desires to be met at all times. We want our ministries to be well-received and successful. We want our spouses to meet all of our needs. We want our kids to appreciate us as their parents. And of course, we don't want to suffer or live without, or to experience any major failures in life. And on and on it goes, right? That is what I call the kingdom of Jeff. 
right? But you can insert your name in there as well. That is common to all of us. I want my kingdom to come and I want my will to be done. And that was true of David, especially as he got older. We're gonna find out that he acted out of a passion and a zeal for his kingdom, forgetting that he'd been called to a greater purpose by a greater king. David made it about his kingdom. And when any of us drifts from serving God's kingdom to serving our own, when we take our eyes off of Christ and temptation now presents itself in this deceptive but beautiful mask, we are all at risk of falling hard. Falling very, very hard, as David did. And it's important to realize that although external threats are certainly all around us, you know where the greatest problem is? It's inside of us. It's in our own hearts. And that's why God offers us the beauty of his word and the precious promise of his grace and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit so that we can be changed from the inside out. But this is what David is facing in his day. And this week, you're gonna face it in your life as well. So we can identify with this, guys. I know it's not to the extent that David fell, but we can all identify with this. So let's look back at, uh, at, at Psalm 51. Let's talk about the background to this, the biblical background. If you look at the superscription above verse one in your Bibles, you're gonna see that it gives us the exact historical context, right? Which is really helpful. I mean, preachers love this. Like, I don't have to try to do all the research and figure it out. It's right there. It says, for the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And we all know what's being hinted at there, don't we? We do. Now, no one wants to have their failures and sins broadcast publicly, especially when it's as scandalous as this. Imagine for a second being David, having your most embarrassing failure in life turned into a song and then sung in worship for thousands of years. I mean, can you imagine? Poor guy, this is rough. The events behind the psalm are painfully described in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and most of us are familiar with the story. What I'm gonna do is sort of survey it really quickly uh, to sort of set the stage and so you can know exactly what's happening and why David writes as he does. Remember, David came to power in Israel after the death of King Saul, and for the first 20 years of his reign, I mean, it could not have gone better. David was the golden boy of Israel, wasn't he? And he was a renaissance man before his time. He was committed to Yahweh. He was creative, a composer of poetry and song. He was a valiant warrior on the battlefield. He was a man of compassion and integrity. And he was a great leader of his people. And in short, he was a great king. And Israel pro uh, uh, prospered under his leadership. But as we all know, David was not perfect, as none of us are. In fact, David had already shown a pattern in his life from early on. 2 Samuel 5 tells us that when he came from Hebron to Jerusalem, he took for himself many wives and concubines. We often read right past that detail in 2 Samuel 5, and it raises the question, why? Why would a man whose heart was for the Lord, who had shown sensitivity and wisdom for so long, a man who was wealthy, powerful, and had everything that he could hope for, why would he fall into the trap of sexual sin? When is enough enough? And again, this is our struggle too, just at a different level. When is enough enough for us? 
When are we gonna be fully satisfied in what we have and stop with our wandering eyes trying to find more? When our hearts aren't satisfied in Christ, we become open to all kinds of temptation. This is a battle we have to fight each and every day. Now, thankfully, there's coming a day when this will all be over, right? When we finally get to be in the presence and the glory of Christ and we'll finally be free from the desire to have more. But what we want to do in the days that we're given here on the earth is to make progress towards that ultimate goal. God has promised that he is going to absolutely complete his work in us. But we want to work towards that goal right now. Right? Both for our benefit, for the kingdom's benefit, to move towards that goal one step at a time, looking to have greater satisfaction in what we've been given by him. We sing a hymn here. It says, may the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that should be our regular prayer, that that is true of us in our walk with him. Now, sadly, David was around 50 years old when this event with Bathsheba took place. 2 Samuel 11, 1 tells us that in the springtime when ancient armies, the weather was good, ancient armies would go out and they would fight and they would solidify their boundaries and their territories. And David, in this particular year, decided to stay in Jerusalem. He sent his army off to the east to fight the Ammonites and he stayed home. Now the text doesn't give us an explanation, but there's some pretty good ways that we can make an educated guess. He's older, he's more settled, he's a successful king. He's greatly admired. You can almost see him asking the question, what else do I have to prove? I've done it all. What more could be gained by me going out to battle? I've been there, I've done that many times, so why not take some time off, a little bit of relaxation time at home. I've got great commanders, let them do their jobs. And listen, I've heard church leaders talk like that as well, and it scares me. Pastors who've said, look, I've worked a long time, a lot of years, I've got good people around me now, so I can just kind of coast for a while, maybe even let myself get a little bit lazy. Beware, friends, that's how it starts. And so while his army was out there on the front line and they were risking their lives, shedding blood to protect his kingdom, what was David doing? He's back at home, chilling. He's taking a leisurely walk on his rooftop, which is what people in the Middle East even to this day, tend to do. And you can imagine from the height, if you know anything about the geography of the city of David, his palace was located up by Mount Moriah, overlooking the rest of the city. And so he would have stood on his rooftop and looked out over the city and thought, look at all the signs of my success. It looked pretty good to him. But of course, there was something else taking place on a nearby rooftop. A woman named Bathsheba was on the roof of her home bathing and the Bible describes her accurately as very beautiful in appearance. And just like pornography draws a man in today, David's eyes and heart were drawn to what his eyes had now fixed on. And he lingered there. Now, that could have been the end of it, right? He could have confessed that sin, could have said, Lord, this is where my heart just got taken to that visual. And it could have been over. He could have moved on and not lingered on it and just said, all right, Lord, wash me clean. But he didn't. He didn't. In fact, he so lingered on the thought of Bathsheba that he took the next step in fulfilling his lust. And this is what we find about falling to temptation, right? It is a series of decisions. It's a series of decisions that we keep walking down that path. So he took the next step. He actually sent word by messenger to inquire about the woman. Tell me about her. And that still was at the end of it. He took a third step and the text actually says this, he had his men take her. 
and bring her back to the palace. And he did that now knowing that A, she was a married woman, and B, that she was married to one of his own best soldiers, loyal soldiers, a man named Uriah. And then as if things weren't bad enough at this point, later after their sexual encounter, Bathsheba sent word back to the king that she was pregnant. And that opened up a whole new chapter in this appalling saga of the king's life. Rather than coming clean right then and there, what did David do? He now hatched a plan to hide everything that he had done. And when you're a powerful man, you know what? You can get away with it. I'm the king. I'll cover it up. Who's going to question me, he must have thought. So first he tried to get her husband Uriah to take a leave of absence from the battle, come back home, a few days at home between a loving couple, and Uriah would simply conclude that the child would be his, right? But it didn't work. God wasn't going to allow that, right? He was not going to allow it. Uriah's sense of duty was too strong. He refused to leave the battlefield and come home. And so what David did next was, is so despicable, it's almost beyond, how do you even fathom what David did next? It's so bad. He orchestrated Uriah's murder, carefully disguising it as a battlefield tragedy. His plan is absolutely brilliant in its wickedness. Uriah would receive a hero's funeral. David would look like you know, the sympathetic king marrying the grieving widow, and nobody would ask any questions. Brilliant in its wickedness. So after waiting a suitable amount of time, David add, added Bathsheba to his gaggle of wives, and he must have thought to himself, I'm going to get away with this. But 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, in one of the great understatements in all of Scripture, says the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So he's not going to get away with it. And a year or so later, God sent his prophet Nathan to deal with the issue, to uncover what had tried to be hidden. And by the way, you have to admire Nathan's bravery. He was well aware of what had just happened to the last guy that got in the king's way. And now here he was to be, about to be a meddlesome preacher. But out of obedience, he bravely headed for the king's palace to confront David. And, and rather than just coming straight out and accusing him, what Nathan does is so creative and so brutally effective, right? He tells the story about a poor man in David's kingdom who owned only one lamb, but that lamb meant everything to that man, everything. But then there was another rich man in the kingdom who had huge flocks of sheep, and he was planning a, a banquet for a visiting friend, but rather than sacrifice one of his own many sheep, what did he do? He stole the one lamb from the poor man and slaughtered it for the celebration. And as David listened to the story, you can picture him, right, getting righteously angry. This man's in my kingdom, and he must have gripped the arms of his throne, and he shouts out, he renders a verdict on the spot. He says, what? That man deserves to, to die. Man. Perhaps you've, have you pictured this scene in your mind's eye, this powerful king on his throne? That man deserves to die. And I picture Nathan, you know, looking deeply into David's eyes, pointing his finger and saying, you are the man. You are that man. And now I picture David's jaw just dropping and his eyes getting big, his 
the color rushes out of his face, right? And sweat starts to form on his forehead. And he knows it. He's caught. He's caught. And then after reminding the king of all that Yahweh had blessed him with, Nathan asked the key question, why, David? Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You had everything. Why wasn't it enough? And then Nathan prophesied all of the consequences that would follow for this sin. The sword shall never depart from your house, O king. And the Lord will raise up evil against you from your own household, and it will be public. Because you acted in secret, David, Yahweh will do all of these these things under the sun and in front of the people of Israel. And we know this came true, right? You read the rest of 2 Samuel, you'll see it. David's reputation was put to shame. His infant son died. His daughter Tamar was raped by her half-brother Amnon. David's son Absalom rebelled against him violently, drove his father out of the city of Jerusalem. So David was going to live a life of great pain and suffering from that point forward. And the lesson for us to see is this. While it's true that sin is certainly personal, in many cases it doesn't stay private. Life-changing consequences come from sin. They ripple out into the lives of other people. It's not just yourself you sin against but to the people closest to you. Now, what happened after that confrontation is pretty shocking to those of us who are familiar with American politics because how many politicians go, oh, yep, I did that. No, they never admit anything. We have one candidate who's literally bragged about that. I've never apologized in my entire life. They never do. But what does David do? He does not deny it. He doesn't shift the blame. He doesn't attack Nathan doesn't try to spin his way out of it. 2 Samuel 12, 13 tells us, he simply said this, I have sinned against Yahweh, period. And then comes Nathan's surprising response. He talks about the death of his infant son that's coming, but he says, the Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Now, for many people who read this story, especially young believers, that, that is outrageous in their minds. After all, a woman was taken by the order of a powerful man. Her husband was murdered. He tried to cover the whole thing up. David deserved the death penalty, didn't he? He said it himself. He's the man who stole the one lamb. He deserved to die. But God said through Nathan, that sin has been taken away. But on what basis can God do that? Is he still just and righteous if he washes that sin away? We'll come back to that question at the very end. Let's break down our five verses. Let's go back up to verse one. So that's the background, and it's important to know that. That helps us illuminate these five verses, right? David starts, first thing, he appeals to the Lord for mercy. Be gracious to me, or some translations say, have mercy on me, O God. Now, listen, in the church, we throw these words around all the time, grace and mercy. We love those words, but we tend to use them sometimes flippantly, but it's good for us to really understand exactly what they mean, especially when we're analyzing David's heart here. Be gracious to me means basically, Lord, show me undeserved favor. Show me favor that I do not deserve. Have mercy on me means, Lord, show me your compassion, your pity. 
because I don't deserve it. Combine, that is exactly the sentiment of the Hebrew verb here, Hanan. To ask for such a thing from God means that you have come to the end of your own resources and you have nothing to bring to the table. That is so important to understand. You, you've run out of your own resources. You cannot get out of this fix that you found yourself in. And so you bring nothing to the table. Lord, I've committed an act of rebellion and I have no defense to mount in your presence. I simply throw myself on the mercy of the court. And that is the right posture for all of us as we come to God in confession. The, this is the cry of a man who, you see, he has no desire to try to justify himself. That's the right posture for us. We shouldn't be acting as our own defense lawyer. Can you imagine coming into the presence of God and making excuses for your sin? I've done it, and you probably have as well. Or I pointed the blame in some other direction as if it's the fault of my circumstances or the people around me. But when you or I come to the Lord in confession, there's only one legitimate argument to make. It's really not anything outside of me. It's me. It's me. So I come and I admit who I am before the Lord, warts and all. I open up my heart. I appeal to the one thing that I know is absolutely true, the one thing that will never fail, and that is that God loves me in Christ and that his blood has paid the ransom for my sins. So I can come to the throne of grace and be absolutely honest, to splay my heart open before God and say, look how ugly this is. I can do that without fear because I know I belong to him. And sometimes it takes time for us to, to, to understand that we get so used to in front of other people sort of making excuses or lying that when we come to God, we tend to treat him like a person. Like, I'm gonna lie to God, really? I'm not gonna be, I'm gonna talk a little bit about it, but I don't really wanna verbalize what I've done wrong. How silly that is. Because of the cross, I can claim the Father's promise to look upon me with mercy and grace. And therefore, I can be completely honest before him. Now, following up on that New Testament idea, look at the basis upon which David pleads for mercy here. Does he appeal to the many years of his faithful service? No. Does he appeal to his track record as a really great king of Israel? No. Does he remind God about how many psalms he's written? <laughs> no. Or how many battles that he's won on behalf of Israel? No. David doesn't expect to be forgiven based on anything but the two things you see in verses one and two. Very simple. First of all, according to your loving kindness. And that is the beautiful Hebrew word chesed, which is sometimes translated God's steadfast or unfailing love. And it's a concept that is literally rooted in the covenant, the unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham. His loyal love. According to that, I know I can come and plead for mercy. And then secondly, in verse two, according to the greatness of your compassion. David is sure of this, about God's character, that he is compassionate towards those whom he loves. And we should be sure of that as well if we're found in Christ. And all this reminds me of what Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3. It's, a, it's, it's what we love to sing. Listen to the words. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. When does it cease? Never, not for his people. His mercies never come to an end. When do they come to an end? Never for his people. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's a great passage to claim, is it not? 
Be honest with God. Plead for his mercy. He'll receive you. And then David makes three specific requests concerning his sins. Verse one, blot them out. Verse two, wash me thoroughly and cleanse me. And each of those terms are specific Hebrew terms that have powerful meanings. Blotting out means erasing something from a book. In the ancient world, it was, a, it was an accounting term, right? It talked about ledgers. It means to erase or to wipe away something from a ledger. So David understood what we talk about in the New Testament, that my sin is a debt that I owe. And I don't have the currency to, to pay it off. I have to trust in another to pay it for me, to erase that from my ledger. Secondly, the term wash described how you did laundry in the ancient Near East, how you would have to soak and soap and then knead a garment, and then you had to rinse it and wring it out. It was quite a process. But all that was done to take out stains. And David seems to understand that, that his heart and his body had been stained by this sin that he had been involved in. And the only thing that could wash it thoroughly was the Lord. I can't get it out. I don't have enough water and soap to get it out. Lord, I need you to wash me clean. And then finally, the term cleanse, taher in the Hebrew, which was a picture of ceremonial purification. When an Israelite went, into the tab- went to the tabernacle or up to the temple later on, they had to go into a mikvah first, right? Ceremonial washing, cleansing before they could approach the throne. So you take those three words together and it paints this beautiful picture of the totality of what you and I need on a daily basis to come before the Lord, to abide with him in, in, a, in a fellowship relationship. Here it is. First of all, wiping away any record of our sins, erasing it from the ledger, removing the stain of that sin from us, and then once again, purifying us with his new mercies every morning, purifying us, making us white as snow so that we can have fellowship with a holy God. And the thing is, guys, this is available 24-7 to us as his children, right? We just have to approach him and he welcomes us. The veil's been torn, come in. Tell me about your life. Jesus actually wants to hear about, he knows about your life, but he wants to hear you talk about it. It's a good thing. So take advantage of that. What David describes here is such good news for us. God is not stingy when it comes to his mercy. He lavishes us with grace. He forgives beyond our our wildest imagination. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, he removes our transgression. How far is that? It never stops, right? Or as Micah declares, he will tread our iniquities underfoot and cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea to a place you can't even find. You can, he posts a sign, no fishing. Don't even try to drag it back up. You won't get there. It's gone. Do we believe that? Or do we let the, this just linger in our hearts and minds and drag us down? Now, after pleading for mercy and grace, then David does turn to confession. And this is important. Verses three and four. And let me just state the obvious, guys. None of us likes to do this. Nobody likes to confess. We, we don't enjoy having to face or even verbalize the facts about the ugly parts of our character. We'd prefer to keep quiet about it, try not to think about it, cover it up maybe, shove it down deep into one of those. Uh, if you picture your heart like a, like a, 
an apartment building. You've got all these different doors, right? There's some doors we'll walk into. We clean those up all the time. That's not a problem. But there's a couple of those doors you're like, I haven't been there in a long time. And I'm not sure I want to go in there. So I just, I lock that door and I don't talk about it. And we hope it goes away. Does it? It doesn't. We who love God's word should know better. God sees and knows everything, even what's behind those doors that we don't want to open. And not just our actions, he sees what motivates our actions. And so I've described this before. It's like, it's like that first moment when you begin to feel that a cavity is forming in your mouth and you pretend it's not there. Oh, am I the only one who lives in this denial? It's like, ow, every time I drink cold water, ow, okay, it's gonna go away. Does it go away? It doesn't. Eventually, you have to deal with it. You have to address it. So in verse three, David says, I know my transgressions. Underline that. The CSB translates it this way. I am conscious of my rebellion. And my sin is ever before me. David is defining what he's done. This is the first step towards meaningful confession is understanding what sin is. Listen, it's not just a mistake. It's not just, I I just made an error in judgment. It's worse than that, right? David's been living in denial for quite a long time before he got to this point. But once he was exposed by Nathan, he stopped playing games. That's where we want to get to. The quicker, the better, right? Don't play games with God. He's not fooled. And just as he used three words in his request for mercy, David now uses three distinct Hebrew words to describe how he rebelled. Up in verse two, he called it iniquity, which refers to how we as sinners, how we twist and distort things. We twist and distort what is true and end up on the wrong path. And then in verse three, he uses the term transgression, which has the idea of crossing boundaries. Like we, we willfully violate the boundaries that God has drawn, his authority and his law. And then you see the word sin, the general term that refers to missing the divine mark. It's what tells us that we've fallen woefully short of God's standard for holiness. And again, you take these, these three words together. David is a beautiful poet, isn't he? The way he's a wordsmith. He, you take these, these three together and you can see David is not dancing around the issue anymore. He knew he had twisted the truth. He knew he had taken the path of wickedness. He knew that he had rebelled against God and they had fallen woefully short of the standard that God had set for him. And he says it, I know this. That's a good thing to say to God. God, I know this. And the emphasis on I, And the emphasis on three times here, my iniquity, my transgressions, my sin. This is taking personal responsibility. He's not sloughing it off as if it doesn't matter. He's not blaming other people. He's not pointing to, well, I was in a, look, I was in a tight bind here. I just, you know, what was I going to do? No excuses. He doesn't blame Bathsheba. Well, you know, she shouldn't have been on a roof. I've heard, I've heard people say that before. Oh, she shouldn't have been that attractive. (laughs) Really? Really? He doesn't justify, you know, staying in Jerusalem. Well, look, I've earned a break, bro. I've earned this. Who are you to tell me? I'm the king. I can do as I please. He doesn't. 
doesn't do that. He doesn't blame Uriah. If the guy would have only obeyed my orders and come back home, we wouldn't be in this fix. <laughs> Can you imagine? No excuses, no rationalizations, no blame shifting. These words from David are, they're gut-wrenching, aren't they? He's broken over his sin at this point. And so he's finally ready to splay his heart open before God. This is a healthy place for him to be at. It's a good place. By the way, you might remember about six months ago, we looked at Psalm 32, which also has a connection to this story of Bathsheba. And it was a Psalm that David wrote this in hindsight. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand, God, was heavy upon me and my vitality was drained away. Guys, that is what unconfessed sin does to us. There's a spiritual, emotional, and physical toll that it takes on us. And David was saying, look, the weight of my sin, this secret that I was holding was killing me. I think that's what he means in verse three of our text when he says, my sin is ever before me. David couldn't turn away from this. It's like it had been tattooed on his eyelids what he had done. And it would be for you and I. Every time I close my eyes, I see this, what I've done, but it's my secret. And I'm not going to, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to go to God. I'm just going to try to hold on to it. This is painful. It's like a, 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 a track playing on a loop in your head. It won't go away. It's got to be dealt with. You're going to be miserable as a child of God until you deal with it. Like that cavity forming in your mouth. You're going to be miserable. Now, verse four comes as a bit of a surprise because he says, against you and you only, speaking of God, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now that, he's not trying to say that others haven't been affected, that Bathsheba and Uriah and the families haven't been damaged. They certainly were. What he's saying is what makes sin sin is that it's against God. And that's important to understand. Don't get me wrong. Please don't take me out of context. Harming other people is, is horribly bad. But rebelling against Almighty God is just that much worse. That's the ultimate problem here. Some have said, and I think this makes sense in light, light of what David writes here, we hurt other people, we wound other people, we commit crimes against other people, but we sin against God. And that's an important distinction. And by the way, we always ought to seek forgiveness from people that we wound and hurt and harm, right? But ultimately, when we sin, it's against God. And David goes on, so that you are justified, Lord, when you speak and blameless when you judge. And so in confessing his sin, David is not only not trying to justify himself, he's doing the opposite. He affirms that God is always justified in his judgments upon mankind. And that his law and his commands were good and righteous even when David was violating them. In other words, we as creatures, we don't stand in judgment of God's standards. The standards belong to him alone. He is the judge. And the hard truth is, if God had cast David into hell for this sin, he would have been just. He would have been absolutely just for doing that. Aren't you glad he's gracious? Because the same is true of us. Apart from his sovereign grace in Christ, he would also be just in casting each and every one of us into hell. And that's part of what David is acknowledging here. Now, last verse. Not only did David specifically define his sin, he also acknowledged the ultimate source behind it. Look at verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, meaning I was guilty at birth. 
in sin, my mother conceived me. So it's even before birth, it's at conception. This was true of me. And this is the doctrine of original sin, right? Which you find, yes, you find both in the Old and the New Testaments. It's throughout the scriptures. The truth that all of humanity is born under the dark shadow of the fall and that each one of us is born under the headship of Adam, the original sinner, right? And so we're brought into this world with a a heart and a mind, a desires, affections that are corrupted. And instantly we're judged guilty before this holy God. And of course, that answers the question about why we need to be born again in this life, right? If we're born under the headship of Adam, corrupt and guilty, we need to be born again and brought under new ownership under the headship of Christ if we want to spend eternity in heaven in the presence of holiness. Does that make sense? When we talk about being born again, explain that to people. Because that term born again has sort of lost some of its luster in our culture today. Explain, you were born under the headship of Adam. That's your father. And now you need to be born again to a better father, to the second Adam, to one that can save you. David's not trying to use original sin, by the way, as an excuse. He's not blaming his parents, right? He's simply speaking to the depth of his sin, to what we call total depravity. I am completely depraved. Every inch of me is touched by this. This is the original source of his iniquity. And what do we learn from this? That every deed of the flesh, every deed of the flesh, whether it's as heinous as adultery and murder or as simple as a lie or gossip, it's all symptomatic of a much deeper problem that we have in our hearts. Ultimately, it's an issue of our desires and our affections and our worship. Doesn't matter if they're big sins or little sins. All of us are touched by this. Now I want you to notice something before we wrap up. Do you see how good and gracious God was in exposing David's sin? Even though it was, I mean, you can imagine how painful this was for the king. But how good God was, it forced him to come clean. It forced him to repent and turn. And we don't often think of it that way because we hate the idea of humiliation and embarrassment, but it's true. That exposure led David to a place of true repentance. And that's what we'll talk about next Sunday. So as we close, let me come back to the question of whether, should we be outraged by the fact that God just said, I take his sin away? Should we be outraged by that? Well, Let's acknowledge this fact. Every word we've read so far in Psalm 51 points us forward to Christ. He's the answer. It points us to the Redeemer who would one day come to Israel and pay for sin and defeat death. And that's where David's hope for forgiveness was set. Even in the Old Testament, his hope for forgiveness was set on God who is the only savior of mankind. Now, you may object, but what about the sacrifice? Yahweh established this sacrificial system to atone for sin. Well, we know from the book of Hebrews that that was only a shadow and a foretaste of something much, much more powerful to come, a reality that would someday come. And clearly, we know that all those animal sacrifices didn't solve the problem, right? That's why they had to be offered every single day, every single week, every single month, year after year. They didn't satisfy And so Yahweh's instructions for atonement always look forward to the one ultimate sacrifice that would finally and completely satisfy his justice. 
So even though David didn't fully understand that at the time he wrote Psalm 51, what he's pleading for here is for the coming of the ultimate lamb. That's what he needs. And so yes, you would be justified in your outrage for God passing over David's sin if, if God said, I'm just gonna sweep this under the carpet. Right? I'd be outraged right with you. If God just said, you know what? Ah, he's my king. He's my guy. Everybody will get over this. So I'm just gonna sweep this under the carpet. If God did that, I would join you in outrage. But that's not what God does. That is not what he does. God could look down the corridor of time from, from David to his promised descendant, the perfect son of God, who would die in David's place. Right? Because at the time Christ died, he had passed over sins from the Old Testament period, but the perfect son of God would die for David. He would, Jesus would pay the price for David's adultery and his murder and his cover-up. Jesus would be the one to take the full brunt of God's wrath against David for all of it. That's why we can't be outraged by the fact that God looks past it, that he, that he washes it away because it will be paid for. It is paid for. And the reality is every time you and I confess our sins, we too are longing for Jesus. The only good news is we live on a better side of the cross and the sacrifice is actually finished. And so we don't long for the lamb to come. Now we long for him to return and we long for our final deliverance that's either gonna come through our physical death or from his actual return, whichever comes first. I'm happy with both. And we long for that moment when we're going to be taken to a place where sin is no more. To that place where we will finally see Jesus and we will be with him and we will be like him. That's a comfort. That's a comfort in these times we live in. But in the meantime, guys, we appropriate God's forgiveness daily. This is the discipline side of it confessing, repenting, turning, and then basking in the grace that he has lavished upon us. We, we pray, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. That is actually a prayer for just not just daily provision of food, but for daily provision of cleansing from sin. That's a daily prayer. We read this in our scripture reading for this morning, 1 John 1, 9. Man, memorize this, this promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that? If so, why are you not going to the throne of grace and opening up your heart? Can you now better grasp the depths of human depravity? Can you now grasp the magnitude of God's grace in the face of our depravity? Do you see how it's not possible for any of us to fall? How it's not impossible, I almost said it wrong, impossible for any of us to fall hard into sin. If we, if we, if we take a day off, we're at risk. It's not impossible. Do you now understand that recovery from even the worst of sins is possible through the blood of Christ, the worst of sins? And that you're never disqualified from fruitful service in the kingdom. If you'll just trust in the promise and confess, repent, and turn. And then accept. Accept the promise. God says, I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I know you don't deserve it. I don't either. 
but there is now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, we're just getting started on Psalm 51. It is chock full. One Sunday, maybe two more, we'll see. Let's bow our heads. I wanna give you just a little bit of quiet time on your own to process through all of that that I just shared this morning. I know it was a lot, but I want you to thank God for, for Jesus, for all that he has done for you. And I want you to think about your patterns of confession and repentance in your life. Now's a great time to open up your heart and say, Lord, this is who I am. And you love me anyway. Take a few moments and pray.